previously on Keep the Dream Alive. As the studio got culty, it just was permanently booked. It was like somewhere on 450 days in a row sold out. At that time, San Francisco still had some weight as like a cultural center. I do think recent years in San Francisco crossed a new kind of line. I watched countless artists leave this city, and I watched the fragile scenario in which artists could stay in San Francisco and make their things become impossible. Tiny Telephone made you feel like you were hanging out in a room and that everyone was behind you and you were making music the way people love to make music. My general feeling was that the bigger the band, the more of a pain in the ass they are. Third Eye Blind asked me for four months of studio time. And I was like, man, I don't know about this fucking crew. So he sits next to me and he says, what are we going to do about this rate? And then he turns around and he walks out of the room. Most bands, when it comes down to it, are remarkably conservative and remarkably fearful. To really use the studio as an instrument, the only way it would work is if I had my own studio and I could go there after hours. When you're in a recording class that is 95% male, everyone thinks you're the dumbest one in the room. But I have felt that at other studios, definitely. People who tour a lot, they're often, you know, they're often emotionally damaged people. I met someone who was fascinating. I really fucking like this person. And I ask her nervously if she wants to kiss me. In France, there's a maxim that if you kiss on the steps of a church, then that means you're going to get married. And so that's what we did. We got married, and she was like, is this a mistake? And I was honestly said, I have no fucking idea. Keep the dream alive. Keep the dream alive. This is John Vanderslice of Tiny Telephone recording. And I would say that the, the really the, the middle of this story, the peak of Tiny Telephone was intoxicating. We had this ironclad rule. First off, we had a lot of like strange and I thought very useful rules in place that a lot of other studios uh, didn't adhere to. And one of them was that we would never, uh, ever... Uh, cancel a band because a bigger band kind of came through. So um, at the the peak of our like run, we were getting like crazy amounts of bands that would come in la- last minute, like um, Frank Ocean. A tornado flew around my room before you came. Islands of Montreal asking us for chunks of time and we wouldn't uh, have them because, you know, we were often booked between like three and four months without a single day. Um, and I, I, I would talk to managers and they would just find this so irritating. Like you could tell that this, they had really not had much resistance to someone clearing out the calendar before, but we, we were, we were kind of adamant that, that first off, it's a very, it's a non-hierarchical creative safe space. Right. Um, Oh, and then we would get a tons of basketball players, too, because of, like, the Warriors. So, I mean, we had uh, KD, Kevin Durant, and, like, I don't know, like, just tons of, like, some bench players and some, like, rotation players and some fucking ballers. So, I don't know. It was It's amazing. It's also amazing that we've never, we, we got so many calls and we never had one 
um, NBA player in because they would like call about like tonight or tomorrow. And we just didn't operate in that way. The other rule that we had is we, we wouldn't change our rate no matter what. So our rates were very uh, under market and they wouldn't go up or they wouldn't go down. So first off, what are you going to do? Get it like a forensic accountant to like inspect someone's 1040s? Like you don't know who has money and who doesn't. And first off, like indie rock people who are the richest, they look the poorest, right? You know, it's like a put on. And the idea was that we just stayed out of all that. We just had this like crazy low rate. Um, we didn't change it because first off, when you slide your rates, the people who have the leverage get you to have the lowest rate and the people with leverage um, are the the kind of winners of the cultural uh, derby. Like once this band cults, their manager, <laughs> their manager um, contacted us and said that their budget including a producer, was $150 a day. And then we kind of like, Bo Sorensen did this kind of like expose where he did this deep dive on their finances and just figure out, out they're just like crazy, like rich kids from New York. Their parents own like a gallery in the upper whatever side and like that kind of shit. So, so we just had these like very, I thought like ultra democratic rules in place. And the studio was like, was soaring. It, it listen, doesn't mean this was like stress-free. This shit fucks your nervous system up, as I've said before. But, you know, the kind of rent expenses to income ratio is all doable at this time. But this is the thing, is that when you have like an empire, however small and ir- irrelevant that empire is, and listen, I, kn- I know that the scope of, of the, the story here, like I'm not a narcissist and I'm not delusional, right? These, I was running like, a small business. I am a moderately successful (laughs) indie rock songwriter. Like I don't have like these inflated narratives in in my head, but pain is pain and euphoria is euphoria. And you're here listening to this story. So first off, as I've mentioned, you know, when, when you own a business, you, you get dragged into capitalism, whether you want to or not. And it changes your brain chemistry. And one of the first things that happened was, Uh, I wanted to like expand the empire. This is how empires are lost, right? Like every empire, uh, it's, it's like you overextend, right? Financially, militarily, how, whatever. Um, so I opened the B room in, you know, 2000, 2009 and, you know, like running one studio is easy. Once my friend had one kid, Jamie, actually, who you've heard, Jamie Rado, who, who you're going to hear from on this pod. Yeah, he and Ellie had one kid, Joni. Awesome kid. He, he's like, oh, one kid's like an accessory. <laughs> and then he's, he had another kid and he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> they had Gene and it's like real, it's real shit. It's two moving parts and they're often um, working against each other. So that's what happened with the B room. My name is James Riato. I'm a musician and producer and recording engineer. I live in Pasadena, California, but I just moved down here from Oakland uh, with my family. And I previously worked at Tiny Telephone for about 
11 years, I think. And I moved down to Pasadena because I'm opening up my own studio with a couple partners who also worked at Tiny Telephone. Uh, we're calling it Altamira Sound, and it's in Alhambra, California. John was an incredibly welcoming person uh, when I first met him. And I had no experience at all in the studio. And I think one thing that I learned about John over time was that he really values people and personality more than he values experience, actually. And he has a real innate ability to to kind of identify people that he thinks have uh, talent or creativity that would that would work in his, you know, his crazy orbit. And so when he was opening, he was first starting to uh, think about the idea of opening the B room in San Francisco. And uh, he kind of took me aside and he said like, Hey, I know you, you enjoy hanging at the studio and being a part of sessions, but I think that you could actually like do this if you want to, if you want to learn. Um, and that was like a life changing thing for me to have somebody give me that opportunity when I really had no business being there at that point. Uh, and, and, you know, he was right. I did work really hard and I did become, I think, very good at, at what I do, but I think a lot of people have that potential. They just don't have the person like John to find it in them and give them the opportunity to like fuck up a lot. And, you know, he gave me the keys to his studio and, and I was able to go in anytime I wanted on off hours, really. So I was, I was there in the middle of the night working with my friends and trying to figure out how to get stuff to work. And, and actually, uh, even beyond that, like my earliest sessions, he like financially supported them in a lot of ways. I would get like 20 days of discounted time because he was kind of investing in me. Uh, so bands that I worked with were getting time at tiny telephone for like $200 a day or something crazy because he wanted me to learn. And, um, and it was a really amazing, powerful thing for me to, to be able to be in a studio for 20 days and really not knowing what I was doing, but, but learning on the job and getting to a point where, where I was bringing in a lot of work for him in the end so that, you know, it worked out, but he invested in me and, uh, I definitely would not be doing what I'm doing if not for, for John. So peak of tiny telephone, I'm uh, doing what every, every other, you know, Mark does. And I'm, over expanding the empire and then i'm out there having like a personal life and that's you know it's it's inevitable but it's 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 also like going to be your downfall you know i could take the stress the business the money all that shit like i'm good at that but when you kind of like overlay this emotional instability uh on top of it that really i think maybe did me in in 2006, I met someone we'll call Madeline in, while touring in France, um, and 
it was just, you know, immediate. We made a decision very early on to get married in France to get her a permanent green card. And, you know, post 9-11 immigration shit in the U.S., I'm sure it's way worse now, is was like a, a real nightmare. So, you know, we went through, you know, a year of this this kind of like harrowing limbo stuff. I wrote a record about it called Emerald City. You stay in And then eventually we got her a green card and she moved to San Francisco to live with me. That was incredible. So we had this like amazing kind of like, you know, six, seven year run. Someone asked me why I I haven't dated a musician before. And I'm just like, man, I'm not going to let someone do to me what I've done done to other people. Like, like touring sucks, man. It's, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be left, you know, I, I, I it's hard and I don't want to leave anyone, but it's like to have like two people moving around and touring like that's, that's fucking brutal. So I'm probably not making things better because I'm touring all the time. Also, I'm, you know, opening a second studio, but I'm emotionally available. I, and I am also uh, super like emotionally direct and honest. So I'm out there touring, touring, touring. In 2013, Madeline picks me up from the airport uh, SFO. I just have flown back from Europe from a tour. And she's like kind of behaving differently. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I could just tell. I just knew like within the first five seconds that something was 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 going on. And... And she said, I think that maybe I, I want to get like a, a separate apartment for a little bit. And I said, did you cheat on me? And she said, no, why would you say that? But I like, I just knew you just fucking know, you know, and, and like, I, we were in a monogamous relationship. First off, you can do whatever the fuck you want, as long as you talk about it and you agree with the other person, but you don't violate like your best friend's trust by doing this, right? So I knew something was wrong. She didn't um, really cop to it for another month. And I think that 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 month killed us. You know, I think that that was like a, like it was like a tumor. It was done, you know, it was cancerous. And so that unwinding of the relationship, something that I did not ever imagine myself not having or being in, in love with that person and living with that person. That was, I think in some ways that was the beginning of the end of my mental health. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure if I've like really recovered. I think that the, like the level of trust that I, that I had then, um, it was like a, a very difficult kind of like un, unraveling. You know, we were in therapy. We we just tried, I mean, I tried everything to keep uh, this 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 thing alive. So here we are. We're 2013. The really the up to that point, the love of my life had like 
you know, kind of like violated the sacred codes of our relationship and we were spiraling towards like termination. Saddest fucking thing ever. Um, The B Room was a great, amazing addition to like my world in a sense that we had for, for the first time ever, we had this communal space in between the A room and the B room in San Francisco. So I was renting basically 7,000 square feet, which is a lot of room. And we had these common rooms, like an instrument room, a kitchen, picnic tables in the front. And so we started seeing this like magic thing where, you know, engineers, producers are hanging out with each other. And then bands were outside having lunch together or becoming friends. And then we would see this translate into like shared, you know, bills later, or they would go on tour with each other. And the studio, be it changed. It, it, it was like this really sacred, creative space. And then it became much more of this beautiful hangout zone, you know, where like people would kind of roll up just knowing that that there would be, you know, if you came at like 2 p.m., there would be like 10 fucking cool musicians, you know, eating burritos from El Matate on a picnic table and like making ritual pour overs. And you could like roll in, talk to everyone and have this, you know, amazing creative hangout and then leave. And so the, it became like a much more fluid and surprising location to to be at. And that was that was like a really amazing thing. Also, we had a, we had an echo chamber that was shared. Uh, we we just had this like d- a different universe and different possibilities in the studio. So, my marriage dissolves. Ultra sad. I am touring with a vengeance at this point. Um, I'm on dead oceans. I'm doing well, but I am, and this is, again, cry me a river who gives a shit, but like every independent artist is going to get smaller. Guaranteed. guaranteed. Like unless, unless you are a rare breed, you are going to witness your own financial uh, death by seeing your numbers go down, and keep in mind that when you're when you're an independent artist, you are you're you're barely fucking working class. Like if you win the 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 lottery in music, like some finance bro would be like, get those numbers out of my face, <laughs> like you fucking loser. <laughs> like, so you know, I around like probably 2012, 2013, I started seeing my numbers go down, like at shows record sales, et cetera, like streaming. Like, and I was just like, fuck. Uh, and you kind of have a feeling too, because you've, you've really witnessed every other band get smaller and you just, you know that you're like crossing this like point of no return. And that coupled with my marriage dissolving, it's like hair trigger shit at that point. So 2013, I'm touring. We're in my Chevy Express van. We are driving on the 80 freeway in Ohio, and Jason Sloat is in the back seat. I'm uh, in the front seat, and I'm reading uh, one of the Faulkner Snopes books. And Jacob is driving, 
and it's dusk. We're probably going 75, 80. I mean, we're going the, you know, the flow of traffic. And we're on an interstate. It's safe. It's fine. We're in the slow lane, right? It's two lanes at this point. And there's a car ahead of us that's just parked on <laughs> in the slow lane. It's not in the shoulder. It doesn't have its hazards on. I'm assuming it just seized up. And Jacob's driving and absolutely through no fault of his own. He is a very, very, very safe driver. Uh, he doesn't quite, you know, see how stationary this car is. And I look up, I scream. Jacob, you know, kind of jerks the wheel to the left. Thank the fucking God, like, thank the Lord that no car or truck was in the left lane. And the van kind of like peeks up on its left two wheels <laughs> just for a second. And like, keep in mind, these vans flip like all the time. And if you are a touring musician, you know other musicians who have flipped their van and have been ejected or have not been ejected and some musicians who have been permanently fucked up. I mean, I know a musician who was paralyzed for life uh, in, in this in this shit. So the van kind of like, you know, careens a little bit on two wheels and then it rocks back down. I don't know, we maybe missed the car by 20 yards less. I don't know. It was horrifying to me. It was terrible. And I knew at that point, once we got the van straight, slowed down, turned around, like, what the fuck was that? I was like, I'm never going to tour again. <laughs> I, was like, I didn't say anything. And I, did, and I didn't, um, it wasn't sad or happy. It was just like, okay, I had a good run. It was like Moby Dick, man, when he falls out of the boat, you know, he's like, hey, if I survive this, everything's gravy, you know, like, okay, great run, played a thousand shows. Didn't die. Let's wrap this up. So got back from tour and then pulled the plug on it. It's like, I'm done. You know, I, I'm I'm never going to be in a van again. I'm never going to tour again. And listen, we gotta we have to make extreme decisions to to find out like what is healthy for us and what we need. And I knew that it was like probably going to be like a really positive thing for me because I would find out really in intensely how important music and touring was for me, but that was going to be four years later. So come back. I will not tour anymore. And I'm like, I'm going to just produce records full time. That was great. I spent four years, I probably produced a hundred records and I'm really, really proud of those records. So Slater Kenny was in the studio with John Goodmanson for about a month, and I found them to be like really lovely to hang out with and and talk with and I remember that Carrie was really interested in food and uh, in sharing like food intel with me and that she knew a lot about San Francisco restaurants. I was very impressed. Uh, I think about food all day long. And so I have like a Google favorites list of restaurants and there's probably like six or 700 restaurants around the country on them. And there were a couple 
pics that she gave me in my own town that I didn't know about, and they're still on there. So I, I have fond memories of this session. Uh, we're going to hear Fangless by Slater Kenny, and this was produced by uh, John Goodmanson, and he's a, a producer that I absolutely adore. The next song we're going to listen to is Harlequin Press, a song by me, recorded by Ian Pleachy. This is on Dagger Beach, and this is probably my favorite recording on the record, and I also really like the narrative, which is about someone that writes a romance novel, and they pitch it to Harlequin Press, they get turned down, so then they change every kind of like romantic scene to be a brutal murder, and then they um, pitch it to someone else. (laughs) I think it's really funny. I met a girl in a blue 
So we're going to hear Paint by Samantha Crane. This is just a lovely human. Uh, I've, I did three records with her. I'm still very close with her. I love these records. These are complicated records. In some ways, it reads as folk music, but it's not. It's not, and they're difficult and arty and surprising albums. And the records are different from each other. They were all done with Jacob Winnick. And just a note about her vocals: she's, you know, easily one of the best singers I've ever recorded. And these are usually first or second takes, and they're not punched. They're not comped. These are just continuous vocal takes. She's a crazy, crazy good singer. There, where the painted come off, that's where I stopped. I looked at the flakes there, then brushed them off. Got hold to your host. That was the most, the best you'll find. I'm trying not to disappear into the shadows, into a tunnel that doesn't end. Doesn't know where to go. So where is that ghost that was most the best you'll find? My name is Samantha Crane. I am a musician and a director and poet and just all around sort of creative person. And I am from Oklahoma. I think I hit it off with John because um, I kind of liked his quality of irreverence that he has as a person. I feel like one of my least favorite things about being in the music industry is is the carefulness that everyone seems to have about everything they're saying and doing and how they're looking or seeming. Everyone's just so careful about everything they do and and so it's just really it was really refreshing I think to be around someone who was really I guess just not precious with with things like if he made a mistake as a human that was fine and then also if we made a mistake with music that was fine it's not the end of the world you know if you make a bad record that's also not the end of the world it's just part of like the living process and I also find that that's how his personality is too and I just really like that and appreciate that about him and the recording process at Tiny Telephone I think I mean, I've had the high highs of touring and I've had the low lows of touring. And I was actually on tour opening for John on the tour, like that he swore off touring right after. (laughs) So I remember him having kind of like a rough time with that tour. I don't know if I remember too many specifics, but I do just remember him at every show just being like this is my last tour this is it like i'm i'm stopping after this um which i think felt like kind of draining or like a bummer for for me because to see someone 
who you really love, like as a musician, who you're like really excited to be on tour with, um, just sort of be like, well, that's it for me. I'm putting it. And it, it also is like, or maybe not quite 10 years ago, but it, it was close to that. So still pretty like impressionable myself. Um, feeling like I was seeing like into my own future a little bit. And that was sort of a bummer to me. I was just like, man, I wanted to do this forever. I, I, uh, I didn't know that it had like a timeline on it. And I don't think that I was um, maybe intuitive enough to ask too much about why he had sort of gotten fed up with it. I just don't think I had experienced enough myself to really like understand that. But you know, I've talked to him about it since then, having gone through similar experiences, especially with the like dangerous road conditions of, of touring and things like that. I've gotten into several sort of situations like that myself um, and how that can, I think, change your perspective on what you're doing. But I think I just remember being like at once stoked that I was like maybe on John Vanderslice's last tour but also really bummed that I was like having to see him like not have a good time touring you know that was just like as my friend I was just bummed that I was like seeing him just slog through it I I feel like he's usually pretty um purposeful about like how he experiences like each stop like he's really into like food and like where he's staying and all of that. And I just remember that tour being sort of just like residents in by the airport every night. Like he just didn't care. I think he was just like trying to get through it. That's kind of how I remember it. I don't know if, if he would remember it the same way, but that's how I remember it. Life is not stable, and uh, unfortunately, we don't stay alive forever. And in 2017, my mom died, and that's when the fissures in my mental health, the cracks just broke, right? And I I went basically, like, insane for two, two and a half years. First off, I was incredibly, uh, like— I was incredibly sad because I lost my best friend. I lost the kind of hard drive of like all of my memories. The only family that I had really, I mean, I have my brother too, but my mom was my single, you know, when you have a single parent, um, that is like a sacred connection. And other than my brother now, I don't have, there's not one family member that I know. My family is very small and they like alcohol, so they're not alive anymore, <laughs> and they really like alcohol. Um, and so, in in that like recovery of kind of piecing my life back together again, I I found live performance, and it, in some ways, it saved my life because I went through I don't know at least two two and a half years of like of like uh, intense suicidal ideation and also like somewhat destructive, emotionally destructive behavior. Once my mom, I 
my mom, you know, drank a lot. And I, I was arguing with her about her, like, drinking once. And she's, she basically said to me, listen, at one point you're going to incur so many losses that you just lose it. You just, you're not strong enough to take it. And you might need something to, to help you. And I really didn't, I didn't understand that at the time. And within a year or so of my mom's death, I really, really understood what she meant. And I, I got into this um, vortex of obsessing about death. It's like, it's kind of all I thought about. And, you know, I would, I would take an edible and I would just spiral down looking at my cats, you know, like sleeping, thinking, okay, there's like X amount of breaths that they, <laughs> that they have left. And this wasn't, this wasn't like a, you know, like a sciencey thought. This was just like the most morbid <laughs> and like really sad thing that I could ever, you know, think about. And, and I, I really, I, I, I mean, I would wake up at three in the morning and think, fuck, my mom was like trying to redo her windows you know, the day that she died, we had talked about, you know, like these like double pane windows, argon filled versus this. And I was just like, what's the fucking point of being alive? Like, I mean, it wasn't really until I took ayahuasca, I think that I shook this, this kind of like death shroud that had been uh, draped, draped over me. Someone asked me if I had any regrets, and this was before my mom died in my life. And I, I, I thought, you know, I really actually don't have any regrets that are notable. And here we are like four years after my mom died. And I, I, I the number of like uh, fouls and penalties and kind of like I don't know, betrayals that I've pulled off in the past. It's like crazy how many regrets I have. It's almost like I, I, I became a worse person. I was less reliable. I was more emotionally volatile and I was way more destructive uh, emotionally. And I like betrayed people. I did stuff that I really had never done before. And listen, I'm a, you know, a thinking ultra aware person. I take full responsibility for this shit, but I really understand what my mom meant when she said that there's just like a point where you can't take any more losses and you just, you're not, you're not the same person anymore. You know, you are, I'm, I do think I'm a way worse version of, of myself. I mean, I'm getting better for sure. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, I'm in therapy. I'm really very, very conscious of, you know, you take a lot of hit points, man. It's like a fucking sick ass video game where you're, you're like rolling along and then you're, you're just looking for like one of those bottles of potion just not to die. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have any like grand illusions about finishing this game. I just want to like not die for like, you know, the next 15 minutes.
I remember that sort of over time, John, his personality and his his like day to day existence as a human outside the studio, even it just got uh, more challenging and darker. John's always been kind of dark. He's always struggled with depression for sure. But I think a lot of people would describe John as, you know, he's the quote unquote nicest guy in indie rock. He's like a very social person. And when you're hanging out with John, you feel like he's, you feel like he really loves you and and he listens and he talks to you and it's an interesting back and forth. And what happened with John over time, I think he got totally subsumed by uh, anxiety, uh, you know, with financial pressure, but also with the pressure of keeping this identity going. The, the, you know, he had created this this place that was so important to the the creative heart of of the bay area and he really didn't want it to to dissolve that was really hard for him um having said that he became like a pretty difficult person to be around and i think uh it got to a point where i i told him that he seemed like a really different person and i kind of called him out for being really narcissistic, like not a good friend. I, I had, uh, just had my second child and it was a really tough time for me, uh, you know, work-wise, but also just at home with a new baby that was really, uh, tough. Actually, he was like crying all the time. And John is, you know, one of my closest friends. And I, I think my son Gene was about four or five months old, and I realized that John had never once asked me, like, oh, how's Gene? I'd love to meet him. How are you guys doing? What's up with you? You know, every time I talked to him, it was him just unloading his stress and anxiety on me at a time when, you know, I was feeling my own stress and anxiety. Of course, I worked at Tiny Telephone for a decade. So the idea that my place of work was closing, that in itself was like really challenging for me too. My identity was very much wrapped in, in tiny telephone. And I think that John just became so, uh, so overwhelmed by all this stuff that he stopped being able to kind of be there for the people around him and be a good friend to those that, that had supported him for a long time. I do think that there was this tension between my kind of public persona. Like, like I am, I'm like a concierge, right? At a, like a hotel or like a, I don't know, the guy, the captain of the love boat or whatever, you know, like, I mean, there's like, <laughs> I, I mean, if I'm, if I wasn't, engin- you know, engineering or producing a record, I would show up to the studio. We, we'd have this thing called engineer lunch, right? Which were every day almost every day probably 6 days a week i would go to the to the studio and have lunch with the engineers and the bands and you know you're there as like a 
it's like you're like a good luck charm. You know, you're not there to talk about your misery or your your newfound connection with like death and it's all you think about. Like that's not that's not your role. You know, you are there to make people comfortable and to kind of like share intel about the process of making a record or you know, throw around tour stories or whatever. Like and sometimes this is this is a very this is really good. These boundaries are really good that I it wasn't that my role was superficial. It's that, listen, I I think that the the people that are allowed to be emotionally difficult in a recording studio, it's the it's the bands only. It's not anyone else. It's not the session players or the engineer or the producer or the studio owner. Those people need to be like clear water. You know, they they need to be emotionally simple, and um, and like uncontaminated, right? Because there's no other room. Uh, musicians are, are often really struggling and because it's an ultra vulnerable position to be in. Um, and so that, in some ways, it, it helps you because you, you're not really allowed to bring, um, you know, grief or depression or anything else in the studio. But it can also feel um, like fake, and 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 it's it, it can feel very distancing, for sure. So there is tension, definitely. I will say one thing that I I really appreciate about John is his ability to take criticism pretty well, and um. I tend to be a very honest person. And so when I, when I did call him out on this, we had a long talk about it where I basically told him that he, he was sucking as a friend and that, you know, I was very sympathetic to his stress and anxiety, but that didn't give him, you know, that didn't excuse him from being good to the people around him. And, uh, he really took it to heart, I think. Um, and he, he like very distinctly made a shift in how he was speaking with me and, and the energy that he was putting out towards me. And it was, it was like hugely important to maintaining our friendship. Definitely at a time when I think a lot of the friendships that he had were dissolving actually, because, because, you know, people can only take so much. And I think me being really honest with him and him, uh, taking that criticism and actually, uh, addressing it and trying to improve that has like really preserved us and, and brought us closer, I would say. My name's Danielle Goldsmith and I'm a recording engineer. I first got involved with Tiny Telephone after I had taken some classes at this nonprofit in San Francisco called Women's Audio Mission. And I really loved those classes and wanted to continue that education. And um, I met an engineer who worked at Tiny Telephone through a mutual friend, um, and that was Sammy Perez. And she, I just met her at a show, and then she invited me to sit in on one of her sessions. So I went one day and just fell in love with the place and wanted to be there every chance I could. John is 
kind of like an open book. So I could kind of tell he was he was very open with all of us um, when things were shutting down. And yeah, I don't think he's not like the type of person to hide his emotions. So he told us all that he was stressed. And yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Like he had that place. Tiny Telephone was around for like 20 years. So to have that change must have been huge. And yeah, he would talk about um, like the financial stress and all of that. And yeah, I was devastated when I learned that it was going to shut down. Having that job gave me so much hope. And it was like the best thing about myself. Yeah, like I just loved working there. Um, So it was really sad to hear that it was shutting down. And it felt like a really special place in San Francisco, like kind of a landmark. Um, So to have that be shut down was, yeah, just horrible to hear about. Around this time, when my mom dies, the studio, of course, has always been the most important thing in my life. And I really needed the studio then. I needed somewhere to go every day. I needed stupid tasks. You know, you know. I, I like changing light bulbs. You know, I'm a fucking good janitor. I'm really good at, like, um, fixing small bullshit. Like, it's fun. You know, I like that part of it. Um, I like checking gear and tuning a Wurlitzer and all that stuff. So it saved me in many ways, but I was living and operating a business in the tech dystopian hellhole that is called San Francisco. So, you know, we're competing with this like crazy tech money. And even in the same yard where we're renting space from from the good family, um, there's you know, biotech startups and engineering startups. And uh, there, there was even like this music streaming startup that was probably three doors down from us. And they got like, they got serious funding. So they came in, it's ping pong tables and it's like redoing the concrete floors. And, you know, we're very, very aware of that there's like a clock ticking down, right? So Marilyn Good has defended us forever. Her son takes over as kind of like the, the, the manager of the space, Christopher Good. And somehow this guy who really should not have been able to be, you know, emotionally manipulated by some blue haired uh, musician somehow is like, is sympathetic to what we're doing. I couldn't believe it because he, 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 listen, I, I like honest, straight, direct capitalists. I can deal with them, right? Like the good family was always like worst case scenario with me. And they were always like, Hey, you need to start finding a different place. Cause we're going to evict you. And I, you know, they were really clear in their communication. They were also subsidizing me. So they were, it was a gift. The entire, you know, 24-year run, we we were paying a dollar a square foot at most. I mean, I think I started 
paying like 30 cents a square foot. We're in the mission in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive, you know, class C real estate environments in the country, if not anywhere. So um, Chris Good, Marilyn's son, takes the bait. He's a lovely person. And he actually gets somewhat involved in like what we're doing. He stops by and like watches a session. And, you know, he is, he's like a, he produces movies and he's a badass. So I think that he understood. He's like, whoa, this is, you know, this is art production. And if, if I don't, you know, shield them, this is never, this, this thing will never be replicated. A, a recording studio is all infrastructure. Once you kick out a studio, they're not rebuilding, right? Unless they're tied to a trust fund, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, most of our construction costs were in the walls and that stuff is, it's not going to be re- replicated. So our rent though keeps going up because it has to. We're in San Francisco. Our electricity keeps going up. The scams unravel. So PG&E like revokes our care status, right? So if you're, if you can show that you're below the poverty line, you get heavily discounted electricity. So we were, I think we were probably paying 20 or 30% of our bill. And they just slowly make it impossible to get re-certified. like certified. So our electricity goes from basically like $100 a month to over $1,000 a month. And then, you know, our rent goes up and up. And at some point, it hits $7,000, which is a dollar square foot, which is fair. That, you know, listen, whether or not we believe in capitalism, I don't. But, you know, I signed a fucking piece of paper and I looked someone in the eye and I told them that I was going to pay the rent. And they can do, they can set that rent at whatever they see fit. That's the agreement. Um, so when our rent hit $7,000, that's when, I mean, I think my overhead at some point was $23,000 a month. I didn't have an accountant. I cheat on my taxes. I'm a fucking rat. I'm on EBT. I have Medi-Cal. You know, I'm stealing from Whole Foods, which I still do today, actually. It's very easy. <laughs> Extremely easy. <laughs> Just and cover UPC has been disconnected. I steal in every city and every Whole Foods, trust me. So it's just like we're being hunted down, man. It's like uh it's like we're we're human prey, you know. And it's like what COVID is doing to us right now. <laughs> it's hunting us down. And I felt like I was hunted down by by like capitalism, basically. I was just, I wasn't going, you're not going to escape. I'm serving these fucking, you know, crusty ass punk bands and these like weirdos coming in and trying, you know, making a record in three days or people who are living in the hills of, of, you know, Trinity County and they come down because they want to make a 40-minute record with a pump organ and a, and a floor tom. And it's fucking magic and wild. But our clientele is, they're musicians and they are art folk. And that doesn't go, that doesn't really sync up with uh, $7,000 a month in rent and expenses that are fucking crazy. Now, keep in mind, too, that we're cutting corners in every way possible. I've never had insurance in Tiny Telephone, right? So 
gear, like for instance, like gear insurance, liability insurance. I've never had any of it. So we have in San Francisco at the time, there was probably at least three or $400,000 worth of gear, right? Because all of this shit, because I have good taste, all of this shit um, appreciates. It's ultra rare. It's getting rarer. You can't find it anymore. Uh, it's the best version of what it is. And, uh, you know, if if it was poached or stolen, thank God not, nothing was ever stolen. But we did not have insurance because we couldn't afford it. Not only that, I don't, I don't believe that these companies actually will pay you. I think that, that they're just, I think you'd have to lawyer up and fight it because every other studio that I know that's tried to make an insurance claim has been shot down. So I, just, I don't believe in the, in the whole thing, but we, we had every cheat code possible, but yet our expenses were becoming un, untenable. And that's the point where we hit ultra sadness, which is my best friend. My mom is gone. I'm, it's harder and harder for me to emotionally connect with people in a relationship because I was in this like beautiful long marriage and someone like violated the covenant of this like relationship um, that we had in place again. People do whatever they want. I'm, it's all good. But if if you're in a monogamous relationship, you know that's your that's your best friend. You know you're you're gonna fuck with someone's head for a long time if you, if you cheat on them. And it made it really it made it so much harder for me to be in love with someone, for me to like emotionally trust someone, and all of this stuff started wearing down my mental health. And it really, really peaked with this moment where I couldn't pay the rent in San Francisco. And I had this conversation with Christopher and Marilyn where they, it started with this kind of like brute force negotiation and it ended up with me crying and Marilyn like basically just holding me and talking about my mom because Marilyn knew my mom. So it was just this like, amazing ultra real moment where you know this is this is not about business on a certain level you know I mean it wasn't for me and it wasn't for them and it wasn't for anyone and they weren't forgiving the rent but they knew that I was kind of fucked up and so we came to this agreement that they would put my rent on a tab as long as I agreed to get the fuck out <laughs> and like, <laughs> and the, the getting the fuck out could be a year, two years, three years, but I was going to have to sign a piece of paper that said that I was going to leave. And it was totally made total sense. Honestly, they were way, way nicer than I would have been with someone because once I signed that piece of paper, like I knew that uh, I knew that the finances were so fucked that I was going to run up a crazy tab with rent with them. And I also knew that I was I was going to adhere to whatever agreement we made. But that happened in secret, in private, and no one knew about it. You know, like, I didn't tell the engineers. I wasn't ashamed, but I, I just, like, why, why, like, why, like, advance this, like, dire stuff that's going to happen in three years. So I, you know, signed the piece of paper and I agreed to 
putting a, t- a termination date on us basically squatting in this very, very uh, valued and expensive real estate. And in turn, they would let me run up a tab. And that tab kind of saved me because our expenses started going up um, so much at some point. And I don't know, I don't know how things got like, I mean, it's funny because when things go off in a business, like they, it happens fast. So I think that by the end of the year, my tab for rent was up to 70 grand or something. It was, it was crazy. So the economics of running the studio in, at that point, the most expensive city in the U.S. was not tenable. And that was the beginning of the end. So I knew that we were, you know, I knew that the clock, the doomsday clock was ticking. And I remember being in there one day where the Dodos were recording in the B room. And in the A room, uh, Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down and Mira were making a record and Meryl from Tune Yards was producing it. And so you just had this like amazing, I don't know, it was like a powerhouse like day in the studio. People I adore and people that are involved in a lot of really good music. And I thought this, whatever this is, isn't going to happen again. Like this was special. This was like a very uh, unique and um, incredibly important moment for me at least and i you know i didn't say anything to anyone and i didn't want to like you know i didn't want the engineers to have to uh freak out before they needed to freak out Uh, i'm sure parents feel this way with like you know when their kids are like, am I going to die? And they're like, no, (laughs) no one dies. (laughs) You know, everything's okay. And like, so I don't know, for a year or so, I held this like, you know, private grief in. And, and, but it, you know, I really appreciated that fucking place. You know, I always did and I always loved it, but I knew how unusual it was and I knew that it would not be replicated again. This episode featured interviews with James Riotto, Samantha Crane, and Danielle Goldsmith, and music by Slater Kinney, Samantha Crane, John Vanderslice, and me, Young Chomsky. Now until next time, remember to keep the dream alive. Keep the dream alive.